Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DeFi podcast. Today we have Alison Lude, the co-founder of UMA, to tell us about financial primitives and why we need them. Um, Alison, can you explain briefly what financial primitives are and how we can benefit from them in crypto? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so I think of financial primitives as kind of being like money Legos. Um, they're the individual components that can be put together to create a larger, more complex system. So um, in the Ethereum blockchain, you can really almost think of Ethereum itself as being the first financial primitive that defines um, how you create custody and transfer a tokenized medium of exchange. And then there's all these other projects that are now built on top of Ethereum that uh, define other primitives that can cover the whole range of financial services, everything from borrowing, lending, uh, to investments and insurance. Makes sense. And with these primitives, like what's an example of how they might be used and uh, why they'd be useful to someone? Yeah. Um, so from a developer's perspective, you don't want to have to reinvent the wheel and build everything yourself. What's really cool um, about DeFi and blockchain um, primitives in particular is that you can just put these little Lego pieces together to create the final end user facing product that you want. From an end user facing uh, end user's perspective, um, once somebody actually owns um, some crypto money, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or whatever it is, um, you know, right now, there's not a lot that you can do with it besides just hold on to it. Um, but as we build more and more of these financial primitives, you can start doing more with your uh, crypto assets. Again, using it as collateral to borrow so that uh, take out a loan, for example, um, or to lend it out in order to earn yield or to instead of just owning, um, you know, the, the native cryptocurrency asset, being able to leverage the value of that cryptocurrency asset to get exposure to other things. Um, so it can really cover the whole range of um, financial services that uh, that a person might need. Sure, so you'd have something like lending, borrowing, maybe synthetic assets. Is there anything else that you'd include as part of like those uh, primitives which would be useful for from an end user perspective? Um, I, I really, that's actually a really tough one to answer because one of the things that gets me most excited about what we're building here in blockchain is the ability to make the cost of financial innovation basically zero. Um, so the analogy that I like to think about here is, uh, you know, when YouTube first got invented, nobody, the first thing that people did is they just took stuff from the regular world and then they put it onto YouTube. So they like took their Pirates of the Caribbean movie and uploaded it into YouTube. <laughs> Not a great use case, not super yeah. interesting. Um, but then over time, it evolved. And suddenly, now some of the most popular people on YouTube do things like unpacking presents, um, you know, or, or stream their video game plays, like completely unheard of, unthought of forms of content um, got generated because suddenly the cost of generating and distributing content was basically costless. So the same thing, I think, can happen with financial innovation. And so... I don't know what the equivalent of unpacking um, gifts is going to be in um, financial services, but I'm excited for it. Perfect. And how does Yume or sorry, Uma help with creating these primitives, like uh, on a more granular level? Mm -hmm. um, so you might have heard of the phrase programmable money. 
um, basically we're creating a specific type of program, um, one that makes it really easy for you to take the money you have, like if you have Ether, Ethereum, and you can use that money to create long and short risk on something else in the form of a token. So just going through an example, um, let's say Alice wants long exposure to gold, meaning she wants to make money if the price of gold goes up. And Bob wants the opposite. So he wants to make money if the price of gold goes down, he'll lose money if the price of gold goes up. What our protocol can do is it can make it so that both of them can have this need met and neither of them have to touch physical gold. Um, we simply define a protocol so that as the price of gold moves, Alice and Bob each have claim to more or less money from a common pot. Um, so there's really two primitives actually here that are required for this to work. The first is a primitive that defines how much each participant's claim is worth relative mm -hmm. to some reference asset like gold. And the second is an oracle, which is the protocol for getting that reference asset price on chain securely. Um, and all of this stuff that, you know, the, the thing that's really cool about DeFi is um, we're building on top of the work of others, and others can build on top of our work or extend it as well. So, for example, you could use a stable coin like DAI as the digital money in this common pot between Alice and Bob. Um, mm -hmm. You can tokenize Alice and Bob's positions, and you can trade it out on a DEX, or you can lend it out on Compound. Um, you can reference any price index, really, that you can think of, um, off-chain assets like gold, cross-chain assets like Bitcoin, or stuff that's completely non-tradable, like the amount of rainfall in London. Um, and so uh, it's it's really a primitive because uh, the Cambrian explosion of, of financial products can really explode out of this. Perfect. And what are some approaches to creating financial primitives you've seen in the industry that differ to how you guys are approaching the problem? <clears throat> sure. Um, so as I mentioned before, we're really kind of operating in two primitive spaces. One is defining synthetic markets and the other is, um, oracles. Um, so our whole system design is the only one that we've seen, which combines both a synthetic contract that allows top ups and an oracle, uh, design that's based on a shelling point game. Um, just in the interest of time, maybe I'll discuss, um, the oracle first, since I think that that, that design is a bit more unique. Mm -hmm. um, basically, in order for you to get information securely on-chain, mm -hmm. uh, well, getting information securely on-chain is, first of all, very difficult. And then using it inside of a smart contract is actually really dangerous because your smart contract is simply a bunch of logic. So if you tell the smart contract that the sky is purple, the price of Bitcoin is zero, and <laughs> um, you know anything, like the smart contract doesn't actually know, right? It does what it's told. And so um, what we've designed is actually an oracle that comes with an economic guarantee, um, a guarantee that if you have a smart contract with a bunch of money inside of it that's depending on this price, this oracle price, um, the cost to uh, corrupt our oracle is actually going to be greater than any possible money that you can make or lose um, by using our oracle. And so that's really a unique factor that we think makes um, oracling uh, using external data a lot safer for smart contracts on functions. Perfect. That was like a really good answer. And I guess uh, we talk about financial primitives and building one on top of another. Uh, the obvious question that really kind of comes up is that what is the risk with uh, these primitives and how they might uh, compound in the future or even just now? Yeah, 
Um, I mean, there's just basic smart contract risk. And then, of course, compounding <laughs> smart contract risk upon smart contract risk is another thing. I think the risk of that comes from maybe a, a lack of um, a lack of knowledge and time tested um, um, time tested methods. So the first one is addressable. Well, both are really addressable with time. So when it comes to like a, a lack of uh, knowledge, um, the reason why I think it's really um, addressable is because all this stuff that we're doing is generally out in the open. It's generally open source. Um, so sure, as a brand new user, you may not know if this product or that product is safe or not, but you can look at the reviews of the people before you, people who may actually know how to read an audit code um, and get their take on what's happening in this code, how it's executing and how safe it is. Um, on the other side, in terms of like time-tested libraries and things like that, I mean, a lot of this stuff um, is kind of fresh cryptography right out of the research labs. Um, and uh, and it'll take only really time is going to be able to tell um, how robust some of these methods are. Um, at maybe a more basic level, just to be more practical for maybe the, the listener out there today, um, I think one of the things that I find risky about using primitives um, is just the risk that people um, either create things or parameterize things um, that are really silly. Um, so, for example, um, if you're familiar with the MakerDAO system, uh, MakerDAO is a system for borrowing and lending mm -hmm. where you can take your ETH as collateral and borrow a stable coin called DAI. There's a bunch of parameters that got decided when they launched the system, and they can be updated. Um, but you know, these parameters define like how much you're allowed to borrow, um, how much uh, each individual is allowed to borrow, as uh, along with how much the entire system is allowed to borrow, and what the penalties are if you don't obey by the terms of the system. Um, yeah. And those parameters, you know, they they actually chose very reasonable parameters, I think. But mm -hmm. had they chosen a different set of parameters, then you might see a lot more users who are underwater today, um, or people who lost money in some fashion, um, or the whole system might not have worked out really well had they chosen um, poor, chosen poor parameters. And I think that's a risk as we launch some of these systems that the first set of parameters that we launch with, that any individual system launch, launches with, um, might not. Um, might not work well empirically. Sure, and maybe like just on a quick side note, like what are the regulatory issues that different local jurisdictions of like using these primitives, which may or may not be legal based on where the end user is at? Is there a risk over there, um, which people might need to be mindful of, or is it still too early to say? Um, yeah, I mean, there is no international. Um, <laughs> regulatory framework for any of this stuff so it's it's challenging and I, I just generally always say like kind of buyer be aware of what's happening in your local jurisdiction um, but uh, I, I guess since we tend to operate kind of more at the at the protocol uh, level I would say that what the activity that we're trying to do right now is similar is similar to the activity that you know of, of like building BitTorrent um, mm -hmm. And so we're like BitTorrent, we're not like Pirate Bay. Um, <laughs> and you, as the end user, would be wise to use the core technology in a way that's <laughs> local jurisdiction. Sure. Okay, cool. That's fine. Um, and I guess last of all, why did you choose to solve this problem in particular? 
Um, the first thing that my co-founder and I talked about when we got together to start working on this is what the mission of it was. Um, and it really is, um, our mission is to bring universal and fair market access um, to the world. It's right in our name. Uh, UMA stands <laughs> for universal market access. Um, but, you know, beyond that, um, I think that both my co-founder and I had a, background, a very strong background temperament and interest um, in what we're doing. For me in particular, I started my career in institutional finance. Um, I used to manage a $30 billion book at Goldman as a trader. Uh, and after that, I ran the credit desk at a digital lender that operates in third world countries. Um, and so whether I was dealing with central banks or micro entrepreneurs, um, my old life was always in the fiat financial system. And, uh, you know, in my work there, I saw how deeply unaligned incentives were between different stakeholders in the fiat financial system. And I just got obsessed with the idea of being able to embed economic incentives into a technology to hopefully better coordinate and align um, the incentives of everybody using a system so that value actually ends up accruing to um, the users rather than just being extracted for them from them. Perfect. It's great to know that crypto has super smart people on our side from the old system. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. And I guess, is there anything that you'd like to tell or mention out there, which uh, maybe I haven't covered before we kind of wrap up? I guess for anybody listening who's kind of interested in the work that we're doing and either wants to learn more or follow along, um, you can follow us on Twitter at UMA Protocol. Um, we are going to have some exciting news towards the end of the year with our mainnet launch of our Oracle um, and some really interesting proof of concepts coming out on mainnet shortly after that. Perfect. Thanks a lot for your time today, Allison. Look forward to seeing Uma on mainnet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.